0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses in this section here, in this chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Now, 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica, as a city in that day and age, was an important city. It was a city that was located in a position on the Aegean Sea where there was a lot of ship and trade that was going on, a lot of sea travel. So people were going to and from, goods were coming through, and there was a lot of commerce and a lot of merchants through the city. It also stood right on the intersection of a well-traveled road called the Ignatian Way where there was a lot of land travel. So you had sea travel happening, and land travel happening. And Thessalonica was a hub of all of this commerce, business, and travel that was taking place. Bible scholars tell us it was approximately two to three hundred thousand people in that city. Now, in this day and age, a city of two to three hundred thousand people, especially for people like me who grew up here, I sort of view that as a large to middle sized hamlet. But back in that day and age, two to three hundred thousand people was a lot. It was a much more spread out and rural society than it is today. And so this was a major hub of activity and business and commerce. And the Apostle Paul and his missionary team, which was made up of Silvanus or Silas, and then also Timotheus or Timothy, came to this city prepared to preach the gospel and hopefully for them to plant a church. Now, fast forward a few years later... After that, had already taken place. That actually happened back in Acts 17, which we'll get there shortly to look at that. But several years down the road, Paul is now writing this letter back to this church that has now been established, that has been preaching the gospel, that's been looking to affect and impact this city for the Lord. And he writes back to them, in a lot of ways, this is a fatherly type of letter. Paul is writing to these people, and throughout this letter there are a lot of phrases that he uses that really imply a sense of care, a sense of love that he has for these people and for this church, and that feeling comes through over and over as he writes this letter. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Right out of the gate, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. He's going to talk about, in verse 7 of chapter 2, "...we were gentle among you as a nurse cherisheth her children, being affectionately desirous of you," verse number 8 in chapter 2. And this type of language becomes consistent throughout this passage and throughout this book as Paul genuinely loves these believers in this small, young church plant that he has had the opportunity to be involved with. But we get to chapter 2, which is where the focus is going to be tonight. And Paul's language here takes on a little bit of a defensive tone. In verse number 1, he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance to you, that it was not in vain, even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak... Uh, unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Our exhortation was not of deceit or uncleanness or in guile. What Paul is doing here is he's basically defending himself and his team because there were those outside of the church that were accusing him, accusing them, questioning their motives as to why they came. What was their true purpose? What was the intent of this travel here? In fact, he says in verse number 2 that we were preaching the gospel of God. The last phrase there says, with much contention. There was a lot of danger. In fact Thessalonica in the, the, uh, the track of their missionary journey was the city that they came to right after they were in Philippi. If you remember the town of Philippi, if you remember what happened there to them at that time, they were beaten there. They were thrown in prison there. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, that is where the Philippian jailer and the story of how he was miraculously saved as the earthquake came, the prison doors sprang open. And Paul and the prisoners had the opportunity to escape, but they didn't. And that man, through the testimony of Paul and his team, saw the love of God, and they accepted Christ as their Savior. That town, that persecution happened right before they went to Thessalonica. In fact, let's go ahead and back up to Acts chapter 17, because I think it's important for us to see kind of the the the, tra- the, the track of what is happening here. Acts chapter 17. Verse number 1, this is right after they left Philippi, it says, And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. Verse 5, But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason, a certain brethren, unto the rulers, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. So here they had been followed by, it says here, these Jews that were not believers, who had followed them actually from Philippi, said, you saw what they did over there. They stirred up these riots. They started leveling false accusations at Paul and Silas and the team saying they're causing all of these problems over there. They got thrown in prison for it. They're going to so- cause all of these problems here too. And they start stirring up the people in an attempt to get Paul and his team kicked out of Thessalonica as well. So now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is referencing that. In fact, in verse 2, he says, even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. So he's referencing that whole thing that happened there. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention or despite the fact that there was a lot of danger for doing so. So he's now defending himself and his team from these accusations that their motives were wrong, their actions were wrong, that they were perhaps in it for themselves and they could go on and on with the list. But I want to jump down to verses 11 and 12, the last two verses in the section that we're going to look at tonight. Because here, Paul uses a phrase in verse 12 that I believe kind of encapsulates or the, the, what he's looking to communicate to these believers in this church at this time and what I believe would be helpful for us to consider tonight as well. Verse number 11 says, "...as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children." that ye would walk worthy of God, who has called you unto His kingdom and glory. He says here that we have exhorted you. He's not just saying we just sort of casually mentioned it, but He's saying, in essence, that we are strongly pleading with you. What are they pleading? He says that you would walk worthy of God. Now, this idea of walking worthy of God this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul has said this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 1, he tells a different church, the church at Ephesus I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that word there again, strong encouragement, pleading with them, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Same concept here walking worthy of the vocation that ye are called talking about what God had called those people to do, here he's telling these believers in 1 Thessalonians in the city of Thessalonica that they are to walk worthy of God. So what does walking worthy of God look like? What's he trying to communicate to those people then, and how does this apply to us today? What does it really look like to walk worthy of God? Well, one thing we need to understand, similar to where we are today and where these people were living back then in that time, is that we and they are living in a very godless culture and society. Paul is now telling these believers, walk worthy of God, but yet they're living in the middle of a very godless culture. At that day and age, we already talked about the fact that Thessalonica was the center of trade, center of commerce, center of travel. There was a lot of physical, material wealth. These people, a lot of them had life pretty good. They had their businesses going well. They had opportunities for trade and for money making opportunities. But yet, Paul is telling these people to walk worthy of God in the middle of that. Now, oftentimes, as is true today, when there's great wealth and great prosperity, oftentimes God gets pushed to the side. And that was what happened then. In fact, in that culture, the, the pagan Greek. Uh, mythological religion was prominent. You had a religion that was focused on many, many gods. All sorts of gods for all sorts of different things, all sorts of different reasons. And it was a very pagan and a very perverse culture that this church was right in the middle of. And we live in a similar pagan culture and society today. We live in a culture and a society today that really says there's no definitive truth, just Whatever is right for you, that's what you should do. Speak your truth, live your truth. And yet throughout scripture, we are commanded to look at God for truth, his word for truth, for that foundation, for that source of truth and life. Yet our culture says, no, 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 dig down into yourself, look at your heart, find your truth, be your own guide. Yet the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful, that they're desperately wicked. And these Christians in Thessalonica were living in, sure, different, but in a lot of ways similar culture to what we are today. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we feel as though the challenges that we face are unique, and yeah, they may look a little different, the packaging might be a little different, but the underlying sin is the same. The reality is we are sinful people that are at odds with God, and we live in a sinful culture that is at odds with God, and these people were as well. But Paul wasn't going to let them use that as an excuse to do whatever they wanted to conform to that culture. Rather, he said, walk worthy of God. All the way back into the Old Testament, we see this common cultural problem. In Noah's day, the Bible says that the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. In fact, everything these people said and did and thought about was wicked. So all the way back, as early as the first couple chapters of our Bible we see this wicked sinful problem. The the Thessalonian church was facing a wicked culture. They were facing a godless society. They were facing persecution. Those same Jewish people that had followed them over from Philippi that were wanting Paul and Silas and those men gone, they were willing to do whatever they would need to do to make that happen. In Philippi they were stoned, they were beaten, they were put in prison. This was nothing new for Paul and his team. It seems like at almost every stop they faced intense persecution, and oftentimes the churches that were left faced similar persecutions. Paul was not talking to a bunch of people that were not familiar with the danger of following Christ, and yet that danger had not dissuaded them from accepting Christ and choosing to live for Him. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 3, that he remembered without seeking your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God our Father. He's commending them. He's saying, you've been doing a good job. You're affecting a dark place with the light of the gospel, but now don't stop. Keep going. Walk worthy of God. Our culture is similar to theirs. We have many struggles, but in a lot of ways, in a physical sense, we are at a point in our history, at a point in our nation, where we as a people as a whole, despite the struggles and issues, have things a whole lot better than so many people have throughout history. And yet the reality is we, our culture, just like that one back then, is spiritually and morally bankrupt. So the question tonight is, how do we as Christians walk worthy of God in a culture that wants nothing to do with Him? And I believe the answers are found for us here in this passage, in these verses here in chapter number 2. So let's look tonight for a few more minutes at the example of Paul and his missionary team. If we're going to walk worthy of God, our purpose in life must boil down to one key concept, and that's the concept that we're going to see pop out multiple times over the course of these verses tonight. That is this, that we need to seek to please God rather than man. It's not hard. It's not an earth-shattering idea. We know we're supposed to look to please God rather than man. But when the rubber meets the road of everyday life, it's a whole lot harder to actually do that than it is to intellectually understand it. And when we talk about pleasing man, it's not just other people, it's, it's pleasing our own sinful heart as well. That we need to seek God, to please God rather than any man we must be motivated to please god and not men because god is the ultimate judge let's look down in verse number four paul says but we but as we were allowed of god to be put in trust with the gospel even so we speak not as pleasing men but god and then look what he says which trieth our hearts see he recognizes god's position in this whole thing that ultimately he's not answering to mankind. Paul stood in front of judges. He stood in front of uh, uh, juries. He stood in front of people that were trying him for all of the terrible things he was doing by sharing the gospel. He stood in front of Caesar. He stood in front of the most powerful people of that day. And yet he says right here, it's God that tries the heart. See, Paul recognized that his actions, the things that he was saying and doing, we're not being tried in the court of mankind, but it was God that was the judge that ultimately mattered. Sure, the mankind ultimately took Paul's life, but Paul recognized that God was the one that was truly his judge. He was the one that he was seeking to please, not the people around him. Verse number five says, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Again, points to God. God's the one that's watching. God is the one we're looking to please. He's the witness, not all of these people. Verse number 10, he says it again. He says, ye are witnesses and God also. So he says, you saw how we've lived, but God's looking too. God also, how wholly and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. We must be motivated to please God and not man because God is the ultimate judge Again, not a difficult concept. The goal is we should please God and not man. He is our judge. We know these things. But yet how often throughout a day do we make decisions based on the people in front of us and around us, based on the person on the other end of the phone call or whatever our boss thinks of us or needs from us? And it's not to say that we shouldn't care about what people think. That's not the point. But when we let that control us, to the point that we're willing to say or do something that would displease God, then we've got a problem. And our priorities are out of line. And what the Apostle Paul says is, look, we came in here. Yes, we wanted to share the gospel with you. Yes, we wanted to establish this church. Yes, we wanted to see God do great things. But it was so that we could please Him. Because God was the one who called them to be there in the first place. He told them in verse number 1 of chapter 2, "...yourselves, brethren, know our entrance unto you that it was not in vain." In other words, it wasn't empty. He said the fact that you are even here as believers is a testimony to the fact that what we came here to do was not empty and it was not in vain. But that God used it. He said we came here to do this, but again, it was to please God. They were bold with the truth. Even in the face of personal danger, we already referenced it, but verse 2, even after we had suffered before. For most of us, if we had gone through anything close to what Paul went through in Philippi, we'd be done. I mean, it would be very, very um, disencouraging, shall we say, to land in prison for preaching. It'd be very deflating to be beaten and whipped, stoned, shipwrecked. Spending days and nights in the water, being bitten by snakes, going through the things that Paul went through, most of us would have quit long before. Paul said, even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know. See, he's saying, look, you're aware. It was no secret what they had just been through in Philippi. And it was no secret what was being said about them there in Thessalonica. And he says, we were bold to share our faith with you even in the midst of all of that. He says, We were bold in our God to speak with you the gospel of God with much or despite much contention and personal danger. They weren't motivated by personal glory. Verse number 3 says, For our exhortation was not of deceit or uncleanness or guile, the idea that they were coming in and trying to deceive or to trick people or to talk them into something. One of the things I do in my day to day job is I try to market or sell the services that our company offers with, with uh, remodeling and renovation services for people. So I find myself on the phone or in people's houses quite a bit. And I've been involved in sales type roles for a number of years now. And so one of the things that I'll do from time to time is I'll look at books or videos or other people that do a good job of selling people. What's interesting about sales so often, what's lifted up is anything that you need to do by any means necessary to get what you went there to do, which is to get somebody to agree to buy whatever it is that you're trying to sell. I'll hear these guys talk about, well, if you face this objection, then this is what you need to say. And then if they say this, then say that. And always there's all sorts of end the rounds. And if they say this, do that. And it might not be fully the truth, but I mean, in the reality, who really cares? If they never find out, if you make the sale, the end justifies. I mean, Paul says, no, we didn't come in here trying to sell you something. We didn't come in here trying to trying to get something from you, to deceive you, to trick you. We just came here to preach the truth. We weren't after personal gain. We didn't want anything from you. Verse number five, he says, neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, or a cloak of covetousness coming in trying to get, get, get for ourselves. And then he says, God is witness. He says, God knows our heart. We didn't come here for us. We didn't come here to get popular. Didn't come here to get money, to get fame, to get any of those things. We weren't using flattering words, he says. We weren't just trying to draw a big old crowd. There's plenty of people doing that because that's not what we were doing. We didn't come here for that. We're not here for personal glory. Verse number 6, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. or In other words, made demands of you. Oh, look at us. We're the apostles of Christ. You should serve us. You should meet our needs. You should provide these things for us. Look at us. He says, we weren't here to be a burden on you. We're not after things for ourselves. We're here to please God. They were motivated by pleasing God and not men. They were bold with truth in the face of danger. They were not motivated by personal glory, but rather they had a heart to serve these people and by doing so to serve and to please God. Verse number seven, he says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. The picture here is a young mother with a brand newborn, and the cherishing and the loving and the nurturing that takes place. There's nothing quite like it in the whole world, but then that relationship between that mother and that newborn baby, that mother that is just wrapped up in caring for that child to the point where she's willing to sacrifice her own needs, certainly sacrificing a lot of sleep sacrificing a lot of time, effort, energy. Other times she could be doing other things, relationships she could have outside of that. But no, her tension, her focus is on the nurturing of that little helpless baby. Paul says, that was our mindset towards you. That was our goal when we came. It had nothing to do with us. That helpless little, you know, 20-inch long, 7-pound child can do nothing for the mother other than just sit around and cry and make noise and sleep a lot and inconvenience her. They offer nothing in response to all of the care and attention that they get. Paul says, we loved you like that, even when you had nothing to give us in return. We were not here to get from you. We were here to give to you. They had a heart of service. Verse number 8 says, we were affectionately, so being affectionately desirous of you, We were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. They were willing to put their very life on the line. Obviously, we have Scripture. We know the future for the Apostle Paul, but Paul didn't know his own future. He didn't get to read the rest of the New Testament to see how it all ended. He had just come out of Philippi. They wanted to kill him there. Well, in the first time... Those same people had followed him over here. He says, we're here. We're here to serve. We're here to preach. And then we might die. He said, we were willing to give you your, our, our own souls because you were dear to us. So for the people that were questioning their motives, saying we were in it for the wrong things, Paul says, no, we were here to serve you. But underlying all of that, the reason they loved these people and wanted to serve them is because they wanted to love and serve and please God. See, that was their motivation. They were seeking to, as he had told these people to do, walk worthy of God. They were seeking to please God above all others. That meant they could please God by serving these people. He says again in verse 9, back to this idea of them serving these people, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring, night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. That's the idea of being a burden on them in some sort of a financial way. They were willing to work. Paul was a man who by trade was a tent maker. He was willing to do whatever it took, make tents by day, preach in the synagogues by night. Paul was willing to wear himself out, not get a lot of sleep, not get a lot of rest, because he said, I don't want to be a burden on you guys. I'm here to minister. I'm here to serve. So he says, I was willing to do all of this so that we would not be a burden to you. And then he says, we preached unto you the gospel of God. It always comes back to that. It always comes back to the reason. We're here to preach. We're here to please God. We're here to see the gospel advanced. If that means we have to work, if that means we have to serve, if that means we have to sacrifice, we'll do whatever it takes to the point of losing our own lives potentially. But all of that is so that we can please God. He gets to verse number 10. our witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. He says, you all got to watch us for while we were here. You saw us day in and day out, day in and day out. We were consistent. He says we were holy, we were just, we were unblameable. In other words, no one could throw an accusation at them that would stick be like a smooth rock in a, in a stream. The water just rolls right through. It doesn't catch. It doesn't get stuck. Now, those accusations could stick because there was nothing there. He says, we were unblameable in front of you. As ye know, verse 11, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. And he says, so based on that backdrop, with that as your example, he says in verse 12, We exhorted and comforted you, verse 11, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. And I don't want to jump ahead because whoever's coming after me has the next section here. But then he's going to talk about how they responded to that ministry that they had received. And I'll give you a quick little spoiler. They responded well. Paul was successful Silas and Timothy, they were successful in their mission to accomplish, to plant this church, and to see this church last beyond them. See, if it was all about Paul and his personality and how great he was and how magnetic he was and how everybody just loved him, as soon as Paul left town, the church would have been gone. But Paul was not there to promote himself. This church was not about Paul. It was not about Silas. It was not about Timothy. It was about Christ. It was about the gospel. And that's why when this team moved on, the church remained. The church thrived. The church flourished. Sure, they had their problems, and Paul will address that later on in the book. But because they came in in the manner that they did, because Paul and his team were they themselves walking worthy of God in a manner that was pleasing God and not mankind. They were able to be successful in the mission that God had called them to in seeing a church planted in a dark, heathen place where there wasn't the light of the gospel previously. And so we see that example. We see the success that they had through God and His power. So how does that translate for us today? Because the same God that was working through these guys is the same God that wants to work through us. We have an exciting opportunity to be a part of a small, young church, probably in some ways similar to this group of people that Paul was addressing a couple of thousand years ago. Our church hasn't been around a long time, and yet God has already begun to do a work here in the last several years, begun to call people to Himself. People are being saved. People are being discipled. Opportunities for ministry are coming to us. But it's not about what God is doing just within these walls, because each one of us in a way, similar to Paul and Silas, in the sense that they were missionaries, each one of us has people that are probably never going to come in here, probably going to never go in any church, but we get to rub shoulders with those people every day. So the question for us is, are we walking worthy of God? Are our relationships about pleasing God, or are we interacting with people with an ulterior motive to accomplish some other purpose aside from or different from what God would have us to interact with these people with. It applies to all relationships in our life. It applies to the people we interact with in our workday. It applies to the people in our homes. It applies to the people here in our church. It applies to the people that we run into just casually. It applies to people that we know that don't even live here that we have opportunities to interact with. This is throughout life. Paul was telling these people not just, I think you ought to walk worthy. No, he was imploring them. He was beseeching them. He was saying, please, I'm pleading with you to walk worthy of God. Because Paul recognized that in order for God to work through him and for his team, they had to walk worthy of God. And if this church was to be successful into the future of being a light of the gospel in that dark place, they had to continue to walk worthy of God of God so that God could continue to use them. And so the question for us tonight, are you, are we walking worthy of God? Are our motives clean? Are our relationships pure? Are we seeking God and His kingdom first? Or are we looking for pleasing ourselves, getting our own gain? It's simple in concept, but it's much harder in practice. May we tonight Determine that we are going to walk worthy of God. That might mean for you that there is some sin in your life that needs to be confessed. I would encourage you to confess it and forsake it tonight. That might mean that there are relationships that need to change because your track record with that person has not been one of a believer who's walking worthy of God. Then make that change in that relationship. It might mean that there are any number of things that need to look different for us, for our lives, to mirror the example of the Apostle Paul here, who ultimately, by the way, said that he was just looking to follow Christ. He was trying to be an example based on Christ. So that is ultimately where the standard lies. Joking around earlier about setting the bar. Well, Christ set it way up here. He is holy. He said for us to be holy because He is holy. It doesn't really leave us a lot of room. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of leeway there. At the same time, we can be thankful because the same God who called us to be holy is not standing over us with this this fist of fury if if we mess up, because He's also a God of love, compassion, and forgiveness. He set the bar way up here, but the good thing is He says in His Word that we have all things that pertain unto life and godliness. In other words, every tool that you need Every tool that I need to walk worthy of God is given to us. It's right here in His Word. We can access God's truth every single day. We don't have to go digging around inside of us to try to find it. It's right here if we'll avail ourselves of it, if we'll put the time in, if we'll study, if we'll read, if we'll really look to learn and grow in God's truth. We find it by spending time with Him in prayer. We have the opportunity to talk to Him whenever, wherever, however long we want. We never have to worry about, oh, I'm being too annoying to God today. No, that's not the type of God that we have. We can come to Him whenever we need Him. We can come to Him whenever we don't think we need Him. The reality is we always do, but God is wanting to hear from us. He's wanting to grow us. He's wanting us to become more like His Son, We just need to be willing to put in the effort it takes to do that. So tonight, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged to walk worthy of God so that He can use us to accomplish what He's called us to do. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you tonight for these few minutes that we've gotten to spend looking at these verses here in 1 Thessalonians and just getting to see the example of Paul and his missionary team. Ultimately, Lord, it wasn't about him. He said it multiple times throughout these verses. It was about you. It was about pleasing you. You are the judge. You are the one who sets the standard. You are the one that we should be aspiring to be like more and more each day. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us. We all have different struggles. We all have different temptations. We all have different uh, things in life that are hard. We, have, we, we, we fail regularly, but Lord, I, just, I pray that you would help us. Like Paul encouraged these people, may we be encouraged to walk worthy of you, that our focus would be on pleasing you and not pleasing ourselves or others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.